0: Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm sitting here with Ben Hunter and we're sitting across from Heather Rose. Welcome. Hello, Olivia and Ben.
1: Heather, you've brought in Bruni, um, which is just something different. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, I um, met your work, as a lot of people did, after you uh, won the Stella Prize um, for Museum of Mon Love um, and that is just a gorgeous book. And then I was very excited to pick up a proof copy of this. uh, Bruni, Bruni. jumped into it, there's a a bridge exploding and then uh, this fantastic woman, Astrid, um, going deep into um, what was then Islamic State Territory to negotiate hostages. And I just looked up from the page and thought, this is completely different. (laughs) When did this book begin for you?
0: Oh, look, it literally began for me as a creative process when I walked my beach one day and from the end of my beach I looked down the River Derwent at North Bruni and Tinderbox and so you can see the point and you can see the point of North Bruni and trick of the light, just my imagination, I saw this massive bridge between those two land masses and I thought, wow, why would there be a bridge and what would happen if there was a bridge and how would the community react if there was a bridge and then the next thing I saw was our Astrid this very tall, impressive sort of world traveller arriving at Hobart Airport, met by her sister. And I went home with them and then I saw them at the dining table and I thought, ah, I know you people, you are the Coleman's because when I was 21 I wrote a short story. And I, it was a bad short story, I'm, I'm not very good at short stories and, uh, and I admire that craft enormously. But the, the story was, I was trying to encapsulate the feeling that we have often sitting at family events when there's a whole of polite conversation on the top and a whole lot of subterranean sort of, you know, tension underneath. And I wanted to try and capture that, but I was only 21 and I realised I wasn't proficient enough, so I set it aside. But that family kept coming back to me over time and I'd think, that's funny, I wonder why they keep occurring to me. And suddenly there they were. And I think partly the reason that I felt so at ease in writing the book was because they seemed so familiar. I'd had them for such a long time and they were just another family I knew, almost like a family from childhood, that you know, I'd, I sort of had a sense of who they were. But, of course, I didn't know at the time that they were such a political family. <laughs> that became evident once I started writing this book. Yes,
1: so we have Astrid at the centre of this um, huge um, saga mm. <laughs> that stems mm. from uh, this enormous bridge being destroyed. Um, and needing to be finished on time Astrid's brother is the premier Astrid's sister is the leader of the opposition exactly that's <laughs> bound to happen they're one day in Tasmania they're a dynasty family who are just it's it's a family saga it's a romance it's a political thriller and it's this literary beautiful tribute to Tasmania all in one pile of pages. <laughs>
0: I know, I didn't realise that I'd done that. I literally started it as a satire and it wasn't until it went to my agent that she said, Heather, you've written a much more serious novel than you realise, you know, and and I didn't realise. I, I, this was the first novel I ever got to write full-time so I was able to immerse myself in it in a way that I could never do with previous novels. You know, Museum of Modern Love took me 11 years. I wrote four other novels. I wrote three children's books and I wrote the river wife in that time but this book took me sort of two and a half years and I just poured myself into it every day and I I felt this intense energy to get it finished there was a there was a feeling like this has to be done fast you need to be really dedicated you need to put long hours in you've got to manage this book you've got to get this book done and Uh, And and partly because I think it it was political and therefore it felt like a book of its time. But what, as you know, Ben, has happened is it's become more a book of its time since it's been written. Yes. Mm. Um, Because. (laughs) Because. (laughs) Um, Astra's role in this
1: story is she's brought back to Tasmania on the behest of her brother um, to help them, uh, to help this uh, sort of uh, conservative government bring in Chinese influence, bring in Chinese workers to help the build this bridge on time with Chinese workers, with Chinese money as well, it seems. And there's a lot of uh, um, sort of uh, people are calling foul on that. Uh, how did you approach that sort of China issue? How did you, how did you look at um, this bridge and Tasmania? You really made infrastructure exciting. Look, yes. And use that as a sort of a looking glass to sort of see australia look
0: i immersed myself during the writing of this book in current affairs there you know local current affairs national global current affairs it seemed like these were conversations that were going on in all sorts of parts of the world uh the china belt and road initiative has had a huge impact on a number of countries uh we're seeing um the investment the the the, you know the Use of foreign investment to influence government in many, many, many countries. Now, we're also seeing uh, some very interesting shifts in in ideology politically. And so, uh, you know, in the book, we're a little bit to the side and a little bit ahead of current time. Uh, the, you know, the there's a right wing uh, isolationist president. In America, in his second term, uh, you know, ISIS have a thoroughfare to the sea through Turkey, thanks to Erdogan. You know, there are things that are not very far from real, mm. and uh, and one of the things that is is real for us in Australia is is the influence of foreign governments, but. What I liked about the book is, yes, we must constantly question the ideologies at work in foreign governments that are influencing our democracy, but we also need to be very careful about the ideology of our own government and what we're doing to protect our own democracy.
1: And at the same time, Astrid Mm. is tiptoeing around her brother and sister, Mm -hmm. who are political opponents only in tasmania (laughs) could that possibly be the case and they're from a uh, like you they're from an entrenched tasmanian sort of uh uh, line and they have um come from sort of royal political blood it seems um and she has two aging parents who she has not seen in a long time uh there's something really beautiful you've crafted Mm. there did you look at your own family or
0: did oh look angus was such a beautiful character to write and 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 he's uh you know angus is sort of the father one everyone would want i think Mm. uh and yes he has dementia so he has a very limited way of communicating but a perfect way of communicating and uh, that was a lot of research too let me say to to write angus because uh angus is only able to talk in Shakespeare quotes. So I spent a lot of time looking at Shakespeare again, which was quite a privilege. And then their mother has cancer. And look, for me, uh, writing that family, there are some things that probably are, are almost certainly drawn from my own personal experience. I, I had parents um, who divorced when I was very young, but they had absolutely, um, they had absolutely different Political perspectives. That you know, my my mother is right wing. My father is left wing. My uh, they had different religious views. My da- my dad is Christian. My mother's an atheist. You know, they they've had very very different perspectives on life all all my life. So I've lived with that. But I also grew up in a street where. Uh, I was equidistant from these particular two families and one family sprouted a Green senator and another family sprouted a right-wing Liberal senator. So, you know, uh, it's, it's been part of my life to have these strange sort of extremes around me. And as a writer, that makes for such good fodder, of course, because, you know, it makes for colourful characters.
1: Yeah, and, and Astra's sort of role in this is to work her way around the community.
0: Yeah she's a conflict resolution specialist so she's been that in her family clearly and then she's gone out into the world and made a career of it. Mm.
1: And so in this um, uh, story she's moving between sort of high-end dinners with uh, Chinese delegates and talking to sort of workers and unionists. Um, What's uh, in in Tasmania is that uh, kind of a yeah, everyone knows everyone. Mm. So mm. how do you? <laughs> well,
0: we do. We, you know, we're at black tie functions looking very glamorous, and the next morning you see people in their UGG boots and basically their pajamas at the corner store. That's just how it is in Hobart. You can't avoid that. I mean, I think it's one of the most beautiful things about living in Hobart is you you have to drop any artifice because it's quite evident who you are pretty quickly. Uh, and we also have a great ability to get on with each other. Mm. And we, you know, I have many friends of all sorts of different political persuasions. Uh, But we respect each other and we have good conversations and I think if there's one thing I want from the book is for people to have better conversations because it seems like we're restricting that now in society that there are certain things you can't talk about or that you shouldn't or that we're simply not mentioning anymore and that, you know, to me, uh, the the shutting down of good conversation is the first step towards a sort of tyrannical perspective and, uh, you know, I'm a great one in believing that most things can be sold through conversation. Now, Astrid would agree with that too at the beginning at any rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well
1: there's, there's so much gold in here that I don't want to spoil. Um, but this this I keep coming back to this Tasmanian element. Mm, um, mm. And I don't know if you've been to Tasmania. I have not been to Tasmania, but reading this book has just made me fall in love with this place. Um, what is it that you think that mainlanders misunderstand about Tasmanians and or um, perhaps the wider world
0: what a great question uh so growing up uh I moved to Melbourne I'd been overseas for a few years I left you know went at the end of my teenage years went traveling for a while then I settled in Melbourne and I worked in an advertising agency and of course in those days the minute anybody heard that you were from Tasmania they started making jokes about the fact that you you know you where was your other head and you know was your brother your husband and you know those sort of things and there were an enormous number of jokes and so I just remember um, emblazoning my whole office door with every really s- severe Tasmanian joke I could find just to let everyone know yes I really have heard them all and this is the answer to all of them. I think what's happened over the course of my lifetime is of course Mona got built so Suddenly we have the Guggenheim of the Southern Hemisphere there. It's a magnificent gallery. It's drawn so many interesting people to the state. We've had a lot of sea changes in the last 20, 30 years. We have an enormous population of very interesting, very big-thinking people now in Tasmania. Is there
1: Uh, a divide between the sort of new blood and the...
0: Well, not that I've noticed. I mean, I will almost certainly be the only Tasmanian in a group of 50 people. Mm. Uh, and but I think it's been a great contribution and my sense is that old the old Tasmanians are really welcoming of this because it's it's given new blood to our community in so many ways and there's been great contributions from those people you know Uh, creatively politically uh, just from just in so many ways academically uh, we we have a wellspring of big thinkers down there and of course change usually only comes from the outside and so Tasmania has been on that periphery bringing change to the world for a long time I mean we're the birth of the green movement and and here we are now with the greatest gallery in Australia and so all these people are coming down there's festivals all year round it's a magical magical place to live and so The things that people don't expect when they come to Tasmania is first of all the weather is magical. Mm -hmm. We have the most beautiful blue sky and it's visually so beautiful. It's very unpopulated. I was talking to a Punjabi driver in Hobart the other day and he was telling me that Punjab is about the same size as Tasmania. We have half a million people and Punjab has 30 million people. Uh, and the other thing that they don't expect, I think, is the, is the degree of sophistication in food, wine, um, you know, and, and really the visual beauty, the sense that life slows down. People tend to get very tired on day three in Tasmania, I've discovered. Yeah, right. Mm, because it just starts to unravel them and they let go of their stress. There's a lot of oxygen in the air. we have the cleanest air in the world. You know, we have really beautiful water. Uh, and that visual beauty is very soothing on the soul, I think. So,
1: mm. A big theme in this book is the loss of isolation. Mm. Um, and Bruni is kind of this, scene is kind of this last outpost of true wilderness, isolation. You can only get there by a ferry, and this bridge represents so much. Um,
0: is that going,
1: uh, or, or, or is that um, beauty going to be maintained?
0: that will be up to government policy i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said. i think we need to think very carefully about what we value in australia yeah. you know yeah. uh, our agricultural land our river systems i think there's a lot of conversations we need to have about um, future well-being and and what is the wealth of our country and to what extent do we value it in comparison to short-term economic gains
1: I couldn't say that better myself. Mm. Thank you so much for giving us some time today. You have a very busy schedule, so we need to watch you keep
0: move. <laughs> ben and Olivia, it's been great. And so been so beautiful to come in here to Booktopia and see all the work you do and the way you do it. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. You can order your copy of Bruni by Heather Rose from
1: booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.